I said, how are you? And, and nice to see you. Ah, I'm doing well. It's a bit cold in Wyoming, but other than that, um, everything is going well. I feel you. As a, as a pasty white British dude, uh, <laughs> at the start of January, I'm well aware of uh, cold temperature issues. So maybe you can just refresh our audience's memory, let them know uh, what you do, what's your area of expertise, what keeps you busy. <laughs> I, uh, I'm a professor of natural sciences and humanities at the University of Wyoming. My doctorate is in entomology, but I like to say I metamorphosed uh, about 15 years ago into a um, a joint appointment between uh, the Department of Philosophy and the Department of, of Creative Writing. So um, I've tried to integrate um, the humanities and the sciences in, in various ways, and that keeps me pretty busy these days. Is, is Kafka sort of a rock star in your area of uh, <laughs> academic studies? Well, yeah, he certainly is in, he certainly is in my mind. I don't know how many... Uh, of my colleagues have uh, colleagues in entomology. They must. How can you not be aware of of metamorphosis? Yeah. So, um, yeah, he's uh, he he sets the standard for integrating <laughs> insects into storytelling. <laughs> I think uh, the flies a close second, perhaps. Ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, great. I mean, so I mean, I suppose I'm going to do my best. And I mean, it took about five minutes to talk to you last time before i started itching so i'm going to try and avoid that when we talk about insects but maybe you can tell us exactly why you've been you know writing and focusing on locust for a while and what what is a locust yeah um well yeah so my i was hired um about 30 years ago at the university of wyoming to work on um uh, mostly grasshoppers rangeland grasshoppers and their relatives which are the locusts. And really a locust is just kind of a specialized kind of grasshopper. Um, and it's specialized because it has this bizarre capacity. And there's about 13 species of these around the world. Um, and each of these species has the ability to transform itself under crowded conditions. It changes its physiology, its behavior, its anatomy, undergoes like a Dr. Jekyll to Mr. Hyde transmogrification and the two forms, the solitary form and what's called the gregarious or, or migratory form are so different that for decades, entomologists thought they were two different species. Um, and what this is all about is the locust when it reaches very high numbers undergoes this transformation. And it is in a sense, a preparation for swarming because they are able to, if you will, um, signal their own population density. And they know in an insect in kind of sense that food is about to be in short supply. So they grow longer wings, they delay reproduction, they form these enormous swarms and they head out in search of uh, greener pastures. How, how do entomologists even go about studying these, these highly unpredictable and I would imagine very uncooperative uncoo insects? Well, you know, they we, we can keep them in laboratory colonies, um, but really, and the interesting thing about them is not what happens in a cage. My you know, apologies to my physiologist friends, but what's really interesting is their ecology. Um, and so it's out in the field. And that's a good question because we don't have locust outbreaks anywhere in the world every year. They happen sporadically. They seem to be driven primarily by rainfall. Um, and so people like when I was in entomology, um, between major outbreaks, you know, we could uh, pour ourselves into studying their relatives, the 
you know, the garden variety grasshoppers, which can do their own kind of damage, but they don't quite have the cachet and uh, spectacle nature of, uh, of their locust cousins. Well, I mean, how and why are they so noisy? How, what, what is the point of that is my question. <laughs> oh, so are you, t- oh, okay. So you're thinking, I think about cicadas. Yes. Okay. I always confuse yeah. them. I, I frequent Mexico a lot. So, I mean, I suppose that's what yes. I'm hearing. Right. And, and that's very interesting, actually, because the early American settlers on the East Coast, when the periodic cicadas came out and they had that enormous numbers and that droning, they, of course, they weren't good scientists, but they, they knew the Bible, by golly. And so they thought that these insects were what the Bible was talking about when it referred to locusts. Okay. And so they misattributed locust to the cicada, which really is uh, much more related. It's, it's like an aphid on steroids. It's like a ginormous <laughs> aphid, not really a grasshopper. So that's that's a source of confusion. One oftentimes when you talk to people about locusts and they say, oh, yeah, they're really noisy. Yeah, you know, every 13 or 17 years, it's like, no, 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 no. That uh, um, that's not really the locusts. That's the cicadas. Okay, I'm glad you cleared that up. I'm always learning for sure. And it just occurred to me then you brought up the Bible, obviously, and the idea of sort of a plague of locusts. And I mean, do people have some really bizarre assumptions about locusts because of the kind of biblical implications? Oh my, oh my, oh my, yes. <laughs> the eighth plague, right, of, of Egypt was the arrival of the locust. And that was the notorious desert locust, which certainly swept through um portions of North Africa, all the way into the Middle East, actually extending all the way to India, up into Central Asia. Um, portions of their swarms would also invade Southern Europe. Um, and so, yeah, when when I think there's a huge cultural um, attribution that when uh, an outbreak occurs, it's a signal of an angry God, right? Mm-hmm. And so, although I get quick digression about angry gods, um, when the locusts would occasionally invade Southern uh, Europe, uh, there was, of course, the people wanted them to go away. And so they called the village priest who would then appeal to the bishop. And then they would, would ask if the church would pronounce an anathema, right, which is a, a curse, right? So would the church curse the locusts and make them leave? And But to, it's going to get bizarre really quickly. 13th, 14th century, before the church would do that, they had to have an ecclesiastical trial. So they put the locusts <laughs> on trial, but they had a sense of fairness. So the locusts, and this is all in a wonderful book called The Capital Punishment of Animals, which is bizarre in itself. But they had a, if you read the court transcripts, they had a, a, a public defender or entomological defender, I guess. Um, and he argued that, hmm, now wait a second here. If you know, if these are the work of uh, an angry God, then if I tried to cast a curse on them, that's gonna that's gonna upset the big guy, right? We shouldn't be cursing his work. While the villagers were saying, "No, no, no! Locusts are a sign of the arrival of the devil." So it was devil versus God on this grand scale. So yes, I mean, a long answer to your question. We have some very strange notions about the relationship between religion and locusts. That the capital punishment of animals book sounds right up my street, so I will add that to my reading list after this conversation for sure. But tell tell me about the uh, the Rocky Mountain locust, and why is why is that so important and interesting? Ah, oh, well, so every continent, every inhabited continent, not 
Antarctica, obviously, every inhabited content, uh, continent until, until the turn of the 20th century had at least one species of locust, Australia, South America, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and North America had its species of locust called the Rocky Mountain locust. And this creature um, would emerge out of the Rocky Mountains and it would spread across the continent all the way east to the Mississippi River, north into southern Canada, south into northern Mexico, and almost to the, the Pacific Ocean. Um, enormous swarms, as a matter a, a typical swarm, if you can imagine this, would, would consume about 45 metric tons of vegetation a day. Um, now, some of that was natural vegetation, but some of that was, was farmland. And in an out outbreak in the 1870s, 1874, 75, there was a, a fairly sustained outbreak. And, that, and the locust inflicted what was at that time $200 million in damage to agriculture, which is, in today's dollars, it's about $120 billion. So it was... It was called the greatest impediment to the settlement of the West. So there's reports of this one, very reliable reports of one swarm, the largest swarm in human history. It probably had about three and a half trillion locusts and it covered an area. It took five days for this swarm to pass over um, uh, any given spot. But the swarm, if you could have gone out in space and looked down at it, it would have covered an area about four times the size of England. Oh, wow. And so um, so that was the scale. Uh, it was absolutely staggering. And of course, there was, you know, widespread hunger and, you know, the pioneers were, were getting decimated. Um, and so they sent out this scientific commission and whatnot. And all this is really kind of peaking in the 1870s, although there's records of the locusts that we, we gathered from, from glacial deposits going back centuries, at least 700 years. So this wasn't a, a result of anything that humans were doing to disrupt nature. Um, but here's the twist on the story. The last living Rocky Mountain locust was caught in 1904, and it's never been seen since. So they're extinct. And they're gone. Yeah. Okay. And what would explain, I mean, so my first question, I suppose, what would, what would cause the extinction? My second question, is, where do locusts fit into the ecosystem? Because we often always hear about what would happen if we lost bees. Bees seems to be the go-to example. <laughs> uh, is there, is there any significant impact of like the eradication of locusts? Well, okay. So what happened to them? And then we'll talk about why that would matter to anybody. So um, there were lots of theories, right? One of the theories was that they weren't really extinct, that they were just the, the migratory phase of some grasshopper that's still hanging around. But DNA analysis has shown us, no, they were, they were a unique species. Um, and so we were looking initially in the early 1900s up through the 1970s for large scale changes in landscape. So, I mean, any insect that covered that much area, whatever eliminated it, the, the thinking was, must have been equally large in scale. But the, the, the real answer turned out to be um, understanding that any given species is as only as safe as its weakest link. And in most years, the Rocky Mountain locust wasn't engaged in these gigantic outbreaks, and it lived in what was called its permanent zone, which were the fertile, well-drained, sandy river um, valleys of the Rocky Mountains, hence the Rocky Mountain locust. So it was very constricted um, during certain times. And that's true of some locusts still today, by the way. Um, but as good fortune would happen for us, not for the locust, um, these were exactly the valleys that were converted into agriculture to feed 
the mining industry, the gold and silver mining industry of the Rockies. And so habitat destruction of the locusts, inadvertent. The farmers didn't know that their cows and plows were destroying the locust eggs and egg beds. But it appears that our action, habitat destruction, on a relatively limited scale during a time of high vulnerability, um, wiped out the Rocky Mountain locusts. And we didn't have to wipe out every single last patch of them. There's a phenomenon in ecology called the metapopulation. And so you don't have to get rid of every single one of them for the, for the, for the species of the population to collapse. So we did it. Um, we did it without knowing that we had done it. Um, which is kind of ironic because usually we can't get rid of insects that we're trying to get rid of. Here's one that we didn't know we were getting rid of it and we did it anyway. Um, so what what difference did it make? Boy, that is really hard. We just don't know very much about the ecology and ecological processes of the Western United States and you know in the 19th century. But we do know that there were some enormous rangeland grasshopper outbreaks in the 1920s and 30s. And so what we might have done is released, opened a niche or an opportunity for other species to fill in. And we've been dealing with grasshopper outbreaks ever since. Um, I mean, there was some suspicion that some birds like the Eskimo curlew, which disappeared at about the end of the Rocky Mountain locusts survival, may have depended on the eggs of this locust. And there may be many, many other species that were dependent upon it, but we know so little about the biological diversity of the West that um, you know, we can't really uh, sort of name you know, what other species collapsed with it. But we know that it was an, an enormous transporter of nutrients. Um, moving nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium from one location to another. It was a bad news to have a locust arrive on your farm in the year that it arrived. But the evidence was that it left behind, it was like having a fertilizer dose onto your land. If you could survive the loss of crops, and you know a lot of the farmers at this time depended on their crops, not just for market, but to feed themselves. But it was actually, over the longer term, it was good news. Right, because they deposited an enormous amount of nutrients into the land. Um, of course, they took that year's crop, so that was the, uh, you know, that was the trade-off. That's a great answer. And just going back to this idea of you know swarms to the the size and proportion you mentioned previously. Obviously, that that sounds absolutely terrifying, and it's no surprise to me that makes its way into you know biblical accounts and attributed to some sort of supernatural you know, angry punishment, perhaps, but as frightening as it sounds and, a, you know, a, a sight it might be, does does a swarm that size, does that, does that like kind of represent any direct danger to human life? Uh, no, I mean, they, they aren't going to, they aren't going to harm you directly. They, they may starve you, <laughs> but, yeah, but they aren't, uh, well, you know, I guess they nibble a little bit here and there, but you know, they're not gonna—they're not gonna choke people or or smother them or anything of that sort. As a matter of fact, not only did they leave behind this, you know, great fertilizer, but but the Paleo Indians and 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 still some people of of in Africa use insects when 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 the locusts would arrive. That was a gigantic amount of of highly valuable fat and protein, and so. Um, if if you're not an agriculturalist, but you're more a hunter gatherer, this is a windfall, right? It's it's easy pickings. There's evidence from the Great Salt Lake that the the Paleo Indians at that time would wait for the locust swarms to fall into the lake. They'd wash up on the shore, and then you would have 
in rows and rows and rows of sun-baked salted locusts. <laughs> and the anthropologists estimate that a, a single person walking along that shore could gather up uh, as many calories in a day as, as that we would have today in 50 uh, large pepperoni pizzas. Right? You know, it was, it was fantastic news for them. Yeah, I mean, I must have asked you about this last time we was on, but I'm going to ask you again because it's such a fascinating topic. This idea of eating insects, you know, it's uh, it's already a, a very you know well practiced cultural tradition in many countries, in perhaps the Far East, for instance. In the West, it's seen as rather icky, as a sort of bleeding heart vegetarian myself. I've never really understood that distinction. I, I, I've tried uh, insects myself, uh, and at various conferences where people have spoke about them as a you know a legitimate alternative food source. I think the argument is you could probably eradicate the cruelty of factory farms and provide calories and, and protein and they are quite tasty i have to say when prepared mm -hmm. correctly ha first question i suppose have you eaten insects uh, and where are you on the idea of introducing them into uh you know the food source um so i've i've eaten grasshoppers in various ways um as a matter of fact during these locust outbreaks in the in the rocky mountains this scientific commission actually worked to develop recipes figuring that um, if the pioneers were starving, maybe they should eat the thing that's eating their crops. And so they came up with various recipes for them. I think the best way is to gather up locusts or grasshoppers in this case, which is what I've eaten. Um, pop them in the freezer. Great way to kill them. So you don't have don't add any chemicals or anything to them. Wait till they freeze. Take them out. Let them thaw. Take off their back legs and their wings because that's not particularly tasty. And what you're left with is kind of this, you know, pinky sized um, uh, organism that was once described by Native Americans who were served for the first time shrimp on the East Coast. They said, ah, oh, these things taste a great deal like grasshoppers. Um, and so they are arthropods. They probably do taste, uh, they do have a mild seafood flavor. I, I think the best way to, to cook them is to, is to either bake them um, or saute them. Um, they, now, because their body has got a uh, a thin layer of, of of a lipid or a wax on it. They, uh, when you saute them or toss them into a skillet, um, and you throw in some curry powder or something, it adheres very nicely. So they're very easy to flavor. Um, you can put them on a salad. You can eat them one at a time. You can pop them like popcorn. Um, if you like them crunchy, you can kind of eat them like croutons. So there's a good vegetarian alternative. Um, so yeah, I think they're uh, I think they're reasonably reasonably tasty. And, um, you know, I think they're not very difficult to prepare. Well, ah, the other thing to do is once you pull them out of the freezer, here's a key, grab the head and the body and pull gently. The head will pop off and it will pull out what we call the crop or the gut, the stomach of the grasshopper with all that junky black stuff inside. That's not particularly tasty. It can be kind of bitter. So throw away the head and, and, and you gut the grasshopper like a fisherman might gut a fish. And what you're left with is, is a pretty tasty morsel. <laughs> I think this, congratulations, Jeff, because I think it's the first time we've had insect recipe food preparation tips on <laughs> Atwood and Lee. So we are, we are literally treading, you know, new fertile ground here, which I'm very, very pleased about. Uh, but tell me a bit more about the locusts in terms of like the social cultural implications of, of their behavior and what they do and, you know, the, perhaps, the, perhaps the potential eradication of them. Uh, well, they they certainly today um, the, the locusts in the Middle East and in Africa, 
um, have a tremendous impact on, on, on rural people, especially on the agricultural communities. Um, and so they, they can actually create um, uh, political, sociological, and economic disruptions. Um, I, I, I have attended many international congresses or meetings of, of grasshopper experts. They're called acridologists, grasshopper locusts. And I, I once asked a big gathering, I was probably 200, if you can imagine there's 200 people involved in this. Um, I, I asked them if you could wave a magic wand, wave a magic wand, such that there would never be another locust outbreak on earth. The locusts might be around, but they would never transform into the swarming, gregarious phase, right? You could just make it never happen again, right? How many of you would wave the magic wand? Almost nobody raised their hand. And the sense is we don't know enough to make a change of that scale on a permanent basis. As much damage as they cause, there's really, and, and I was kind of proud of my scientific community, there was a sense of humility um, of, no, <laughs> no, we'll deal with them in a way that we don't forever change the ecological processes. Um, and if and when we get to a point where we know enough, then maybe we can talk about intentional eradication or extinction of, of these species. But they just seem to, I mean, when they reach such numbers and they move that much nutrient and that many predators, parasites, and pathogens depend upon these outbreaks. Um, I mean, that's the other lesson here, right, is, um, you know, we, we're sometimes taught in our, in our classes that nature is stable and predictable and regular, um, and that anytime you get an outbreak of something, it's because it's a, an out-of-balance ecosystem. And that turns out to be completely wrong. Um, these organisms are just very good at tracking opportunity, and they're very good at exploiting, you know, uh, irregular rainfall and whatnot. So, um, you know, I think I think the bottom line is, you know, a big dose of humility, as well as compassion for those whose lives are negatively impacted by the arrival of locust swarms. That the idea of humility is a great point there. And I suppose in a way, are humans really guilty of, you know, letting our evolved primate brains go to our head in a sense and thinking we're somehow removed from this ecosystem or this animal kingdom and we're we kind of external observers rather than participants? <laughs> yeah, we really yeah, I mean, especially, you know, maybe in the world of entomology, right? So in North America in the 1920s and 30s, probably in the 40s, 50s, 60s, we thought <laughs> You know, insect-borne diseases, that's because of, you know, those economically backward countries. Um, and then we get Lyme disease, we get West Nile virus, and all of a sudden this kind of arrogance that we've defeated nature. Our insecticides have allowed us to control the insect world comes crashing down, right? And if we ever needed a crashing down, COVID certainly was a crashing down in terms of human arrogance of having mastered nature. Um, and so, yeah, the you know, I think that dose of, of humility, I mean, the other part of this humility is just think about the Rocky Mountain locust, right? This insect was highly mobile, right? Highly fecund, that had lots of offspring. Um, and it was very prolific. It could eat almost anything. Didn't like alfalfa very much or peas. Um, but then people don't like peas either for the most part. <laughs> um, except you guys eat those, those mushy peas. And that's a Bad. It, it is mandated at the state level, unfortunately. <laughs> I see. Um, 
But the point is it could eat almost anything. It could travel far, it could reproduce. It sounds a lot like another species, right? Maybe a species uh, like us, right? These are yeah. all human qualities. And what happened is it disappeared. And so being numerous, being mobile, being polyphagous is no guarantee that we're going to last either. Um, now, the question that I think is fun to raise is the locust disappeared because it ultimately depended upon these sanctuaries, right? These these very specific habitats. And I've always kind of wondered, you know, how about people, right? I know what if, maybe we don't have a maybe we do, but maybe we don't have an ecological sanctuary. But what what is our weak link? What is it that should we lose this? then our population is destined to disappear like the locust. And, and again, it may not be a literal place, although it perhaps it is, but um, maybe it's an idea. Maybe, just to play politics for a moment, maybe it's the concept of democracy. Fascinating. Yeah, lot, lot to think about there. And you've, you've made me think of something in terms of like your interest in entomology and of it presumably insects. Uh, and, and is it a case of this is so foreign and alien that it's fascinating to you, it's so far removed from humans and society? Or is it also a case of actually we can, there's a lot of mirror things here we can learn about ourselves from insects? What fascinates you most? You know, when I began, it was the alien. Right. The, the different. I mean, I, you know, people will tell me, um, sorry, I'm an entomologist or something. I'll tell them that and they'll, they'll say, oh, well, you know, they'll say I'm interested in plants and animals and insects. <laughs> I say, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The insects are animals, too. Right. So there's we don't there's a common common notion that insects aren't even animals because they're so different. They're so alien. Um, and and I think that. You know, I think they they teach us this kind of respect and admiration and wonder at diversity about the ways in which nature and perhaps humans can solve problems in these ways that we may find very alien, unexpected, and that in that diversity is a kind of stability and a kind of and a kind of regularity, perhaps. Um, but you know, as I got more and more into literature and the social sciences, and in particular the humanities. I realize that insects can also be fantastic metaphors, sort of teachers of, of lessons about adaptation, about humility, about our place in the world, um, and, and, you know, and, and about how absurd we are as a species sometimes. I mean, the ridiculous uh, lengths we go to in order to control nature when, in fact, we, we don't have any control whatsoever over many of these species. Um, so yeah, I think there's a weirdly it's it's that kind of brethren and alien qualities that are kind of the yin and yang that are fun to play with and move back and forth between. That's great, Jeff. I've I've really enjoyed speaking to you again. I always learn so much. It's it's fascinating. Uh, where can people find more of your writing? Ah, so um, they could they can go on to Amazon and look up um, my book Locust. Um, oh wait. Wait, here's the uh, here's the cover. Got to do the got to do the pitch, right? So there's Jeez. this book, yeah. And um, if you really want to hear an interesting version of this story, and I, I I sent it to your producer, I have written the libretto and produced along with some very very capable musicians a one hour chamber opera called Locust, um, and it tells the story of the Rocky Mountain locust 
with three very talented singers. It's been performed in the United States, Morocco. It was in Scotland during the uh, the climate change con UN climate change conference. And there's a very nice production on YouTube. Um, it's it's uh, three scenes, only takes an hour. It was written for people who think they don't like opera. Um, this sounds right on my street too. This, this is <laughs> this is calling to me, Jeff. So yeah, I'll I'll check that out and I'll I'll certainly so, certainly check your book out. But thank you very much for speaking to us. I've really enjoyed it again. Well, thank you for having me, Stephen. Take care. <laughs> Bye now.